The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin And be washed in the blood of the Lamb There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb Are you washed in the blood In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore I'll fly away Having therefore, brethren, confidence for the entrance into the holies by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, may we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
our hearts having been sprinkled from an evil conscience and the body having been washed with pure water, may we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for the one having promised is faithful. Hebrews, the tenth chapter, verses 19 on. Just before the broadcast, I received a very troubling phone call from a young man who says he is a Christian always talking about turning back because God is not bringing into his life what he desires and I have confronted him over this time after time after time he became sick because of his sin very deliberate disobedience, uncleanness. When he repented, I prayed for him. Instantly, he was healed. The pain was gone. The suffering was gone. He was healed. But then he went back to his sin. And immediately, the sickness came back upon him. And he came back and he said, Pastor, will you pray for me again that I would be healed? Last time you prayed for me, I was instantly healed and restored. Will you pray again? I said, yes, I'll pray again. But this time, I don't think Jesus will answer in the same way. This time, I don't think God is going to answer and quickly give you deliverance. He's going to test you and see whether you're serious about him. For you have abused him. You have insulted him. You have grieved the Holy Spirit. And so I prayed. I prayed for his healing. I asked Jesus to please restore him. When we were finished, he felt better. He went on his way. He went on vacation. He came back and he said to me, Pastor, I'm still struggling with this. I'm not, I'm not through it yet. I said, are you full of confidence in Jesus? Oh, yes. I'm not going to turn back. I'm going to follow Jesus. Then this morning, just before the broadcast, the call came again from him saying, Pastor, I'm getting really upset with God. I'm not feeling well. He's not healing me. I'm thinking about quitting this whole Christian walk. I couldn't help it. I just cried out to him and I said, You were insulting the spirit of grace. You are insulting the Almighty God. I will not hear this. Repent. Turn aside. Don't let this wickedness remain in your heart. You want to serve Jesus so that you can get out of him the loaves and the fishes. He's not going to heal you until he knows that your heart is totally given over to him. Last time you played with his grace. You played with his mercy. 
Now he's serious about not healing you. Maybe ever. And he wants to know, are you serious about following him? Will you serve him whether you're well or sick? Will you utterly give over your life totally to his power and his control? And if he heals you, you'll rejoice. And if he doesn't heal you, you will serve him with great joy. And there was great sighs on the telephone. Oh, oh, I need to be healed. Said Jesus doesn't operate that way. We don't serve Jesus for what we can get out of him. We serve him because he is God because he is worthy, because he has demonstrated his great love before us and in us. Don't turn aside from him. I hear people saying, it's too hard to serve the Lord. I can't leave my sin. Every excuse for sin is an insult to Jesus. All Jesus is asking for is that we would follow him. A mother says, oh, but I have these three children. I can't, I can't serve Jesus. I don't have time. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus give you those three children? Don't they belong to him? Aren't you serving Jesus when you perform for them the basic necessities of life? Aren't you serving Jesus when your heart is poured out in love for your children? What is your excuse for sin? What is your excuse for sin? Let every sinner be assured that their day of execution is truly set. God will not pass over your sin. When the day of your execution arrives, there will be no more delay. God does not wait because he's in doubt about the justice of the sentence or because his heart questions him in view of the terrible execution about to take place in your life. He only waits so that he may try to persuade you to embrace his mercy and choose to follow him. This is all. This is the only reason why judgment has lingered for a long time in your life and why the sword of justice has not long since struck you down. Now here's a a very interesting fact. God has not only deferred your execution, he has done so at an immense cost. He has provided means for the safe exercise of mercy in your life. You know, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to grant mercy. There is so much danger of it weakening the force of law and encouraging you to trample it down in hope of becoming exempt from its statutes. This is the great danger of the church in this modern era. 
that we have taught our people that justification is a legal term. We've taught our people that they can sin and still go to heaven. It's not so. God has provided a glorious testimony in favor of the law, showing that it is in his heart to sustain the law and justice at every sacrifice has been given. He could not forgive sin before the entire universe. His injured and insulted law had had to be honored. So he offered himself on Calvary, his only son. He can forgive without fear of consequences as long as each candidate for pardon will first be a penitent, humble follower. God's heart of mercy is opened wide and no fear of evil consequences from unearned pardon disrupts the exercise of that mercy. Before atonement, justice stood with a sword demanding vengeance on the guilty. But through Christ's atoning blood, God rescued his law from peril. He lifted it up. He opened a way for you to escape the inevitable conclusion that your sin deserved death. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Revelation 3.20 Jesus' hands have been pierced. Do you know those hands? Do you know that they were nailed through and through? How long have you kept him outside of your heart as he waits for you to open the door and simply say, I give up my life and I choose you, Jesus, and I will obey you. I choose you, Jesus. Who is it that comes in that door? Is it the sheriff? Is it the law? Is it the officer of the law? Is it the policeman? Has he come with armed men to drag you away to execution? Oh, no. He comes with a cup of mercy in his hands. His eyes wet with tears, compassion. He extends the cup to you. And then you say, thank you, Jesus. I can, I can receive the gift of your grace and your mercy, and then I can go out and I can live my life of sin. And frankly, I can't do anything but sin because I'm a sinner, and I'll always be a sinner. What a shame you bring on the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, Suppose you're the parent of a child whom you know to be 
now as an adult under the sentence of death. Until today, you've not known exactly when he would be executed. Now you discover that this is the very day and hour set for his execution. How do you feel? Would not the knowledge of such facts disturb your heart? You know that an eternal death in hell must be far more awful than any public execution on earth. If your own son were under the sentence for execution on earth, how would you feel? If you believe him to be under the far more awful sentence of hell, how in fact do you feel? But let's push this a little bit further. Let's say that years ago your son went to sea, and for a long time you've not seen him or even heard a word from him. Often your mind has been troubled as you have thought of him. You don't know how he's doing, but you fear the worst because you had reason to think that he was he was not committed to righteousness and he was not firm about his principles of godliness when he left home and you're afraid he's fallen into worse and worse society till it may be that he has become a bold transgressor against against country and against God. You're talking these things over with your wife. You're wondering how you might find something about your son's whereabouts. When the doorbell rings, a messenger comes in and he hands you a letter. You take it, you open it, you read a few words, and you suddenly fall back in your seat. The letter drops from your hands. Oh, you can't read it. Your wife wonders what has happened and inquires of you, rushes forward, and she seizes the fallen letter, and she reads a few words, and her heart breaks with agony. Your son has been sentenced to die, and he has sent word to see if his father and mother can come and see him before he dies. The next morning you set off early. You go to the prison, and you learn the details of his painful case. And you see at a glance that there can be no hope of release in your, unless your son is pardoned. The governor lives nearby, so you rush to his house. However, you find him very stern, with palpitating hearts and, and a, a load on your aching souls. You plead and you plead but all seems to be in vain. He says, your son has been so wicked and has committed such crimes, he must be hung. The good of the nation demands it. I cannot allow my sympathies to overrule my sense of justice and my convictions of the public good. But you, the agonized parents, must hold on. Oh, what a conflict in your minds. How the case burns upon your hearts. At last the boy's mother breaks out, Sir, are you a father? Do you have a son? Yes, one son, he replies. Where is he? He's gone to California. How long has it been since you've heard from him? Suppose he too should fail. 
Suppose you were to feel such grief as ours and have to mourn over a fallen son. The governor now sees himself not as a governor, but as a, as a father. All the latent sensitivity of the father's heart is aroused within him. Calling to his private secretary, he says, make out a pardon for their son. And what a flood of emotions you then pour out. All this is very natural. We would not think this strange at all. But now examine the case of the sinner. He's condemned to an eternal hell. In your spiritual ears, if they were to be opened, you would hear the chariot wheels rolling, the great judge coming in his chariot of thunder. You would see the sword of death gleaming in the air and ready to strike down the hardened sinner. But take the case of a supposedly Christian father praying for his ungodly son. He thinks he ought to pray for him once or twice a day, so he begins. But soon he's almost forgotten his subject. He hardly knows or thinks what he's praying about. God says, pray for your dying son. Lift up your cries for him, while mercy yet lingers and pardon can be found. But where are the Christian parents who pray for a sentenced and soon-to-be-executed son? They say they believe in the Bible, but do they? They act as if they believe... Do they act as if they believe even half of the awful truths about the sentenced sinner ready to go down to an eternal hell? What is wrong with the so-called believer who has no spirit of prayer and no power with God? Let's be honest. He is not a Christian. When God says a son is sentenced to die, when the angel of death may come in one hour to cut him down in his guilt and sin and to send his spirit quickly to hell, and yet the father or the mother have no feelings in the case, they are already infidels. They do not believe what God has said. I'm sharing with you some thoughts from Charles Finney in a book entitled God's Call. I read this this morning and I began to weep. And I began to confess how slack I've been in my prayer for my daughters. How slack I've been in, in prayer for a precious friend that I love. What's wrong with me? It's as though some numbing power has come over my heart. That I would not take up their case and struggle in the prayer closet until I gained the victory. I have repented and I'm crying out to God with tears for those I love who are hellbound who are wonderful people 
a, a person can have wonderful sensitivity for a kitten or for a puppy. They can have wonderful sensitivity for a homeless man or woman. They can have wonderful sensitivity for a person who is who is dying. And yet they can be utterly doing that out of a self-centered, selfish heart. Because you have kind sensitivities does not mean you are Christian. What is wrong with the so-called believer who has no spirit of prayer and no power with God? When God says a son is sentenced to die, when the angel of death may come and in one hour cut him down in his guilt and sin and send his spirit quickly to hell, yet the father or the mother have no feelings in the case? They do not believe what God has said. And I grant you, dear brothers and sisters, some of you for your own reasons, some of you out of your blind trust of false pastors, have believed that sin is covered by the blood of Jesus in your life and that you cannot quit this sin you cannot be made righteous you must continue walking in this wickedness before god believing that somehow you're going to be saved and you have such false confidence in this lie you cannot be saved with sin in your heart you cannot be saved if you are in rebellion against almighty god So I'm crying out for you. I'm weeping before God for you, that you would awaken from your slumber. That you would begin to repent and turn to the Almighty God. I can't come on this radio broadcast and be casual with you about your eternal destiny. If you're walking in sin, you are hell-bound. But, Pastor, it would take such a radical change in my life. Yes, it does. It takes you to be born from above. It means you die to yourself and you say, Jesus, I'll now accept you. How long does it take to accept the supremacy of Jesus Christ over your heart? How long does it take to cast aside the idols? It takes but a moment to say, Jesus, I give it all to you. Let me press this illustration further for just a moment. Suppose you are one of the afflicted parents who's gone to the governor. You've poured out your grief before him and have at last found a pardon from his stern hands. You rush from his house toward the prison, so delighted that you scarcely touch the ground, and coming near you hear songs of merriment, and you say, how our son must be agonized with the 
unsuitability and the unpleasant company of which he is a part in this prison. You then meet the sheriff who, you ask, can sing so merrily in a prison. And the sheriff replies, it's your own son. He has no idea that he will be executed. In fact, he swears he will burn down the governor's house. Indeed, he manifests a most determined spirit as if his heart were fully set on evil. This is distressing news. But you're sure you can subdue his wicked and proud heart. We will show him the pardon and tell him how the governor feels. We're sure this will subdue him. He cannot withstand such kindness and compassion. So you go to the prison door. You gain admittance. You show your son the pardon. You tell him how much time and effort it has cost you and how how tenderly the governor feels in the case. But he takes it from your hands and tears it to pieces, and then he tramples it under his feet. You must be deranged, you say to him. But so suppose it's only depravity of the heart, and you know that such must be the case. Oh, you cry out, this is the worst of all. Our son is not willing to be pardoned, not willing to be saved. This is worse than all the rest. We must go to our desolate home. We are done with our son. We acquired a pardon for him with our tears, but he will not accept it. There's nothing more we can do. And you turn sadly away, not caring even to say goodbye. You go home doubly saddened that he should deserve to die both for his original crimes and also for his yet greater crime of refusing the offered pardon. The day of execution comes. The sheriff is there to do his duty. He takes his culprit from the prison to the place of execution. The multitude gathers around and follows sadly along. Suddenly a messenger rushes up to say to the criminal, You have torn to pieces one pardon, but here is yet one more. Will you have this? With proud disdain, he spurns even this last offer of pardon. Now where are the sympathies of all the land? Does anyone say how cruel to hang a young man? And for... Only such a crime as refusing his pardon? No, no one is saying any such thing. They see the need for law and justice. They know that the law is so outraged it must be allowed to vindicate itself in the culprit's execution. Now the sheriff proclaims just fifteen minutes to live, and even these minutes he spends abusing the government governor and insulting the majesty of the law the dreadful hour arrives and at the last moment he trembles under the grasp of death then all is still forever he is gone and the law itself has been sustained in the fearful execution of its sentence all the people feel that this is righteous they cannot possibly think otherwise even his parents have no word of complaint to utter. They approve the governor's course. They endorse the sentence. They say, we did think he would accept the pardon, but since he would not, let him be accursed. 
We love good government. We love the blessing of law and order in society more than we love iniquity and crime. He was indeed our son, but he was also the son of the devil. But what if you attend the execution of some of the sinners of of our own congregation, our own family? What if it's our execution? What if you are brought out for your execution? We hear the messenger. We, we hear the sentence read. We see the fatal hour has come. Shall we turn and curse God? Shall we turn and say, Oh God, it's your fault because I believe that you had covered my sin at Calvary. I was taught that I could continue to sin. In fact, I had to continue in my sin. And you hear the awful words, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. When your day of execution arrives, will you gasp and die? And when your guilty, terror-stricken soul goes willingly down the side of that pit, will we go away complaining about God and his justice? How can we? How can we? For God waited so long for you to turn from your wickedness, your worldliness, your self-centeredness, your selfishness. He waited so long for you. But your heart only became more fully set to do evil, to rebel against the Most High God, to be a part of society and the world, to lust after the things of darkness. All of the universe will look at the facts of your case. And with one voice that rings through the vast arches of heaven, they cried, Just and righteous are you in all your ways, most holy Lord God. Is this cruel and unusual punishment? Because you have allowed yourself to be deceived and believe that you are saved when you still walk? in rebellion against the Most High, and you say to him, but Jesus, I did my best. I tried as hard as I could. No, righteousness does not come by the law. Righteousness comes by our crucifixion and being born from above in Jesus, being transformed into a new creature by being changed by his power. We live by faith, not by law. And so he says, Depart from me, you cursed. And when all of these wicked sinners move away in dense and vast masses, down, down they sink to the depths of their dark home in hell. The saints with firm and solemn hearts proclaim that that God's law is vindicated. 
I want to take you to the scriptures. Our culture has not even begun to take seriously enough. Yea, even I have not begun to take seriously enough the fact that sin will be punished with execution. And there is no shell game being played. There is the power in the blood of Jesus to totally have our sin removed. And if we neglect such a great salvation, Hebrews 10, by how much worse punishment do you think he will be considered worthy, the one having trampled the Son of God underfoot, in fact, having regarded the blood of the covenant by which he was made holy, a common thing, even having insulted the Spirit of grace? Hebrews ten twenty nine. You see, if you have not been made holy, you have not been saved. If you continue to walk in your sin and you try as hard as you can, you have not been crucified with Christ. You have not been changed into his likeness by a supernatural act of God, by your faith in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant, makes us holy now. And if you deny that, you are insulting the Spirit of grace. Now, I spoke to you yesterday about the desperate need for a new beginning in obedience to God. And in John, the Gospel of John, I want to read this for you. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one believing in me, the works that I do, that one will do also, and he will do greater things than these because I'm going to my Father. In fact, whatever you may ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you may ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you may love me, you must keep my commandments. Or chapter 14, verse 7. If you may remain in union with me, and my word may remain in you, you will ask whatever you may desire, and it will happen for you. By this my Father was glorified, that you may bear much fruit, that you may prove to be my disciples. Verse 10, if you may keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the commandments of my Father and remain in his love. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit, and your fruit may remain, that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. I command these things to you that you may love one another. This is what happens when we are changed and transformed and we are union, in union with Jesus, and he is in union with us. Verse 
and we are made righteous. Romans 10, verse 4 says, For Christ is an end of the law for righteousness to everyone believing. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. This righteousness must come by means of another method, another way. Righteousness does not come by struggling now to keep the law. Apostle Paul said in Romans, the first chapter, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel from Christ. He was ashamed of the of the law-keeping because he knew he couldn't keep it. But he's not ashamed of the gospel from Christ because it is power, it is dunamis, it is dynamite from God for salvation to all who believe both to Jew first and to Gentile. Indeed, righteousness from God is revealed in it by means of faith, unto faith. Now it is written, now the righteous man will live by faith. Righteousness does not come by way of struggle. Righteousness comes by way of placing our entire life in the hands of Jesus Christ. It is trusting Jesus But now, let me read for you some very, some very difficult words. In the book of Matthew, in the fifth chapter, I've read this passage of Scripture so many times and I have been uncomfortable with it. I've tried to just bypass it. But finally, the Lord has given me understanding. And I've been praising his name. It's found in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 17. Do not begin to think or how should I put it? Don't even contemplate. Don't let it enter your mind that Jesus came to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And I've always struggled with that because I've said, well, wait a minute. If Jesus fulfilled the law, then the law is fulfilled, and I don't need to worry about it. That's not what he's saying. He came to establish the law. Listen, for truly I say to you, the next verse, until heaven and earth may pass away, one iota or one stroke may by no means pass from the law until all things may come to pass. Consequently, if any person may break one of the least commandments and may teach men to do so, he will be called least by the kingdom of heaven. But whoever may do and may teach them, this man will be called great by the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness may exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you by 
no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you cannot enter the kingdom if the law is not totally fulfilled in your life. Shall I say that again? You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, if the law is not fulfilled in your life. Now, in the old covenant, the law was fulfilled by the blood of animals. In the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats covered the sin, and you were declared righteous, and you were told to keep the law. But it's very clear. Hebrews 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. In other words, you will not be saved by keeping the law. A whole new way was opened for you to become righteous, and it's called the new covenant, when the law of God is written on your heart. Now, grace is is the means by which God turns our heart away from wickedness and infuses into us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is by the grace of God that we are made righteous. It is by being born from above that we are made righteous. But we have so seldom seen any person who is born from above that we have thought it not possible. And so many of you are striving by the law, by keeping what your pastor tells you, by going to seminars and workshops and you're told, oh, you have to continue in your sin. You'll only miss a few rewards in heaven if you continue to walk in your sin. We have not even begun to take seriously enough these very plain words of Jesus, who very forthrightly says, How shall I say it? Let me just read it for you again. Consequently, if any person may break one of the least commandments and may teach men to do so, he will be called least by the kingdom of heaven, or he will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't even begin to think that you can continue to walk in rebellion and somehow you're going to be saved. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, but when led by the Spirit, not under law, we can be delivered under grace. Sins are removed from us entirely. We are cleansed because of the superiority of Jesus Christ's blood over that of bulls and goats. Jesus saves completely. Go to a passage, Hebrews 7. Let me read this for you. In fact, the ones having become priests are many because by death they were prevented to continue, but because 
He, Jesus, continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood, for which reason he is able to save completely the ones coming to God through him, ever living to intercede in their behalf. For such a high priest was indeed right for us, holy and blameless, undefiled, having always been separate from sinners, having become higher than the heavens, who has no day-by-day need, has the high priest first to behalf on his own sins, to offer up sacrifices, then for the sins of the people. Now this he did once and for all, having offered up himself. Now this is the main point. We have such a high priest. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. This is Hebrews, the eighth chapter. Verse 2, a minister of the holy things and of the true tabernacle in which the Lord pitched and not man. Now every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary for this one to also have something that he may offer. He is the mediator of a better covenant. Today I rejoice that the first covenant is obsolete, the covenant of law. We now live under the covenant of grace, but grace is not a covering. Grace is the transforming power of God to make us righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's going to take every ounce of energy you possess. Your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Do not think that you're going to be able to enter into heaven in unrighteousness. For it's Jesus who said in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness may seed beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you may by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you lie to yourself and say, well, I have the righteousness of Jesus, I don't have to be righteous, you are lying to yourself and you are violating the word of Scripture. The verses continuing are very plain. You've heard that it was said to them of ancient times, you must not commit murder, and whoever may murder will be subject to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to the judgment. And you read on through this Sermon on the Mount, and it's absolutely clear. I challenge you to read it. It is absolutely clear. The righteousness he's speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount is present now. It is present righteousness. It is not something in the future after we die and go to heaven. We're out of time for this broadcast today. I'm sorry we did not have our video up. It was, I'm having technical difficulties with it. But oh, my brother, my sister, my heart is stirred with deep conviction. We must have 
a new obedience for Jesus Christ. We must come into that place of righteousness with Jesus. We must enter in. We must find the peace of God. Almighty King, I don't know how to express to my brothers and sisters the concern of my heart as I pray for them that you would stir them out of their lethargy and out of their sleep and out of the deceptions that have been cast upon them. That you would stir them to step forward and say, Jesus, I must have you. I cannot continue to walk in my wicked ways. I must have new life in you, Jesus. I must obey you. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. I urge you to come visit us. You will hear words that will confront and convict and pierce your heart. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find how to find us, where we're meeting. I pray God's blessing for you today, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of his glory with great joy. With